Father in heaven, Lord, we pray now that the truth of your word, both, Lord, the, the eternal and abiding truth revealed to us in the incarnate word, our Lord Jesus, preserved for us in the inscripturated word of scripture, Lord, we ask that it would do its work, that it would bring conviction where needed, comfort where needed, encouragement where needed. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, your communication to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would do what only you can do. Lord, leave us not unchanged, but conformed into the image of Christ. For those who are with us this morning that might not know you, who haven't trusted in Jesus, we pray that they would be one to Christ this morning. Through the power of your spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you to open to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be listening to a couple verses in Genesis before there. Uh, but if you want to just be turned to 1 Peter, we'll spend most of our time there. You can find this on page 954 in the Black Pew Bibles. And as you turn there this morning, I don't think I would be going out on a long limb if I were to state that the verses before us this morning, especially verses 1 through 6 in 1 Peter chapter 3, are disdained by much of our culture. You see, the, the passage before us, the six verses at the beginning of this passage, are going to speak about Peter's call and the biblical call of wives to be in submission to their husbands. And this idea of being in submission or accepting or yielding to a superior force or the will and authority of another over your own will flies in the face of our culture's highest value. You see, our culture prizes personal autonomy above all else. Our culture prizes personal autonomy and in the form of what has often been referred to as expressive individualism. You see, to yield to the will or authority of another person means that you will not always be able to express your individualism however you desire and see fit. And in our culture, this is viewed as a form of oppression. But the Bible paints a different picture for us. And so before we jump into our text this morning, I want us to spend just a little time laying some foundation before we jump into 1 Peter 3. And I want us to think about the biblical reality that humanity has been created for imitation rather than absolute autonomy. Humanity has been created for imitation rather than absolute autonomy. And this kind of absolute autonomy that is prized by our culture is actually the result of humanity's fall into sin. And we want to do that because we want to see the inherent blessedness that is involved in imitation because what we're going to see in 1 Peter 3 today that the wife's call to be submissive to her husband is a form and act of imitation of Jesus Christ and therefore is not a curse upon women but an avenue to blessedness for women. And I hope and I pray that these principles that we see are going to be relevant, not just to the wives in the room, not just to the women, but to the men. And then, of course, we will look at verse 7 as well as Peter addresses husbands. But the first thing I want us to think about is that or humanity has, in fact, been created for imitation. And so to this, we're going to listen to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. In verse 26, in the creation account, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
and in our likeness. Now, if we jump down to verse 27, we're going to read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And at the beginning of verse 28, we read this, And God blessed them. Humanity has been created in the image and likeness of God, which means that as those whose nature and identity is grounded in something outside of ourselves, our nature and our identity is grounded in the nature and reality of God himself. This is what it means for us to be created in God's image and his likeness. And so as those whose nature and identity is grounded in something outside of ourselves, we need to affirm then that humanity has been created for imitation rather than autonomy. We have been created to bear the image and to exist in the likeness of another, namely God. And it's the divinely created purpose and goal of humanity that we would, in a finite and created manner, reflect the infinite and uncreated nature of God. Which means, in turn, that our lives are meant to be lives which are shaped by imitation of God. This is why in chapter 1 of Peter's letter, he can quote Leviticus, where God says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That is an act of imitation that Peter is calling the church to, well, that God first called the church to. And so again, humanity, friends, is created for imitation rather than absolute and radical autonomy. Now, this does not mean that humanity has been created to be indistinct robotic carbon copies of each other. And I want us to think about that for just a minute. You see, the infinite nature of God, the infinite uncreated nature of God requires that finite image bearers have a vast diversity within themselves. There is no way for the finite to reflect the nature of the infinite outside of diversity. But it is not the diversity of radical autonomy. It is a diversity within humanity that is still called to imitation of God. Now I want us to listen just one more time to the relationship in Genesis 1, 27 and 28 of humanity's image-bearing nature and blessedness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. The first thing that God does for humanity after creating humanity in his image and likeness to bear his image, to imitate him, is God blesses humanity. And so blessedness and imitation are inseparable aspects of the indispensable nature of humanity. Humanity's blessedness and flourishing must be found in imitation rather than in autonomy. And the reality of this truth, I think, is made tragically clear to us in the fall of humanity. We might say that the fall of humanity into sin is a fall away from imitation and towards absolute autonomy. Now, the first sin of mankind resulted, I think, in choosing this autonomy rather than imitation. And in Genesis chapter 3, we hear the story of the temptation of humanity towards sin. And I think that this temptation climaxes in verse 5. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, we read this. The serpent has now come and is tempting Eve, Adam, right there beside her. So the temptation comes to humanity 
Humanity has been given one command in the garden. They are to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of the other trees they may freely eat by the hand of God's grace to them. But this one tree they are not to eat from. And then the serpent says in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now this is, I think, a subtle temptation towards autonomy, subtle and veiled. And I say that because if you listen to the words, it sounds on the surface like imitation, doesn't it? Think about what the serpent says. If you eat this, you will be like God. That sounds on the surface like imitation. However, for humanity to eat from this tree, for humanity to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is to say for humanity to reach out and take for ourselves that knowledge of good and evil where we say, now I am going to determine what's good and evil, right and wrong. Doing this will cause us to become unlike God in every other way. I want us to think about this for just a moment. God alone possesses absolute autonomy, absolute freedom to do whatever he pleases in a way that is good and blessed. Now, just a minute ago, we said that humanity was created to participate in and to imitate God in a finite and created manner. And we are to then reflect the nature of God, but we can only do so in a finite and created way. There is an infinite chasm between the finite created nature of humanity and with that our limited and finite knowledge. There's an infinite chasm between the infinite and uncreated nature of God which possesses full and total knowledge of all things and in all ways. Now, when we think of moral judgments, good and evil, right and wrong, moral judgments depend on truth and knowledge for their validity. What do I mean? Well, here's one example, I think. The truth that humanity, the knowledge and the truth that humanity has been created in the image of God is what makes it morally evil to kill and consume humans, but it's okay to have a hamburger. See the difference? It's the image-bearing nature of humanity and that truth that makes a hamburger okay and cannibalism wrong. Now that's a graphic depiction, but the point is this. Moral judgments depend upon truth for their validity. Now, full and perfect truth and knowledge only exist on the God side of this infinite chasm between God and humanity. Therefore, for finite humanity to become like God in the sense that we would become our own center for determining what is right and wrong and what is good and evil is for humanity to inevitably become like God in every other way. And this is because it's only God who possesses full and perfect knowledge. God alone is able to know what is good, evil, right and wrong in any and all situations because God has full, total, and perfect knowledge. And because humanity does not, and by virtue of our finite nature, cannot possess this full and perfect knowledge, because of this, our self-determinations of what are good and evil, right and wrong, will always fall short of God's perfect determinations of what is good and evil, right and wrong. And therefore, our self-determination, our taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and saying, I'm going to decide what's right and wrong, will always move us further away from God because of the limited nature of our knowledge. And so, as those who have been created in God's image and likeness, 
We are to seek our blessedness in imitation of God based on the declared word of God rather than autonomy away from God. Now, with all of this in mind, we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. And as we look at our text, all I'm going to be doing in the text this morning is I simply want to point out in and through our text this morning how obedience to this text, and we're going to spend most of our times speaking about wives to husbands because that's where Peter spends most of his time. But we want to look at this text and point out how obedience to this text is a form of imitation of Jesus. And imitation of Jesus is nothing less than the divine calling and purpose of humanity to be imitators and image bearers of God and therein to find our true blessedness. And so with that in mind, I'm going to read our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, in our text today, we see Peter addresses both men and women by addressing both husbands and wives. And again, we're going to spend the majority of our time where Peter does, which is in this discussion of women submitting to their husbands. And so here in the first six verses where Peter calls Christian women to be submissive to their husbands, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to see a command. Second, we're going to look at the purpose and intended result of this command. Third, we want to look at the manner in which that is to be accomplished. And finally, we're going to see an example of obedience. Command, a purpose and intended result. The manner, the command is to be accomplished. And an example of obedience. So first, the command. The command of our text, or the calling placed upon wives in this text, wives who are followers of Jesus, is that they would be subject to their own husbands. Now, wives are called to be submissive to their husbands and not simply submissive to those husbands who are faithfully and obediently following Jesus. Peter says that wives are to be submissive, subject to their own husbands, even if some of them do not obey the word. Now, if you were at the breakfast hour, you know that for a long time I fell into that category of those kind of husbands. And it wasn't until after I came to faith in Christ that any of that even made sense to me. But I do remember vividly at one point when I was serving as a pastor in the mountains of California that a woman came up to me after she had heard me teach on this section of scripture and she was struggling with what my wife had struggled through for many years in our marriage. She was struggling with how is this good? 
She was married to a husband. He was attending church with her and come to find out at home he was living anything but an obedient life to the word of God. Now, he was selfish. He was unwilling to help her care for their child with some special needs. Well, at one point, she was offered by her family and some friends to come and get away for a couple days, and she desperately needed some time away. And he told her, I don't want you to go. I do not want you to go. I don't want to care for our daughter by myself. And so he wanted her to stay. And she could not figure out how it could be good to be submissive to her husband in this circumstance. Now, the first thing that I told her and the first thing that we need to understand is that whether you're a husband, a wife, male, female, boy, girl, child, adult, whatever it is, our call to obedience is first and foremost to God. So that if any human authority structures and figures would call us to a kind of obedience that leads us to sin, we must obey God rather than man. But when this submission of the authority structures and figures in our life call us to a kind of submission that does not cause us to sin, we're called to walk in faith. Now she was struggling. How can it be good for me to capitulate to my husband's desires? Won't this simply reinforce sinful thinking? Won't this simply lead him to feel more free to be selfish? Why would Peter command this for wives? How could this be good to submit to the selfish desires of these husbands? Now remember pointing out to her the first word in 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise. Or if you have a different translation, it could be in the same way. But all of that to say that Peter sets up his command for the submissiveness of wives to husbands, even sinfully disobedient husbands, he sets this up in accordance with what he has just spoken about. Now, you guys have been working through Fierce Peter, so you know this, but in chapter 2 and verse 13, Peter calls all Christians to be subject, that's the same word that we hear of wives here, to every human institution. And Christians are called to do so because to be subject to human institutions, even and maybe especially sinful institutions, is to imitate Christ. And this comes to the fore in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, where we hear this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When... He was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. A wife's submission to her husband, especially to a sinful, disobedient husband, is an imitation of Christ's willing submission to the sinful human authorities at the time of his death. A wife's submission to her husband in this manner is to embrace the Christian calling to follow the example of Jesus who suffered at the hands of sinners. But how and why would Jesus do this? How could Jesus do this? Well, I think it's important to hear this too. We need to say that submission to sinful leaders that does not lead you into sin yourself is not a sinful act. As a matter of fact, in as much as Jesus himself does this, he submits himself to these human authorities inasmuch as Jesus does it and it doesn't lead him into sin. We see that to do so is actually an act of righteousness. But what makes submission to sinful leaders an act of righteousness? Well, our text is helpful. It's an act of righteousness 
because it is an act of faith in the sovereignty and the justice of God Almighty. Notice again verse 23 from chapter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus submits to the disobedient leaders who reviled him, who threatened him, and who ultimately killed him. And Jesus does so as an act of faith and trust in his Father who judges perfectly justly. Likewise, a Christian woman who submits to her husband, especially a disobedient husband, is a woman who follows in the footsteps of Jesus. It's a woman who says, I am going to commit myself in this act of submission to a disobedient husband, to the God who judges justly. When we are faced with the confrontation of a sinful authority over us and a call to submission, again, in a way that does not lead us into explicit sin ourselves, we can only do so by trusting the justice of God. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, ladies, it's not easy. I can't declare that this is easy and it should be easy. It's not easy, which is precisely why it must be an act of faith. In order to do this, it has to flow from faith. In other words, we must believe that human flourishing is indeed found in imitation rather than autonomy. It has to be an act of faith. And this goes for all of us, not just ladies or wives, but we must all act in faith. We must all learn to humble ourselves before God and to trust that in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, he is bringing about our greatest blessedness through this kind of imitation of Jesus Christ, even when and especially when we cannot understand or see how he is doing this. But this will bring us then next to our next Point, which is the purpose and the intended result of this kind of submissiveness. Now, the purpose of a wife's submissive obedience to her husband, Peter says, is that he might be one. That is to say that he might be one to Christ, one to obedience of the word, and if he is an unbeliever, one to faith in Christ. Now, I think that this only truly makes sense if submission is, in fact, an act of imitation of Jesus. Now, this kind of submission as an act of imitation, I believe we are to understand as a nonverbal proclamation of the gospel. Now, we know that the gospel is the power of God to save. Paul tells us this in Romans 1.16. And we know that it is the obedience of Jesus Christ alone, not our obedience, which is able to accomplish the redemption and salvation of humanity, but the saving work of Jesus must be believed if it is going to be effective. There is no salvation apart from faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be proclaimed and displayed in order to be believed. And I think the logic of our text seems to be that the submissive obedience of wives to their disobedient husbands, in as much as it is an act of imitation of Jesus, is in fact a nonverbal proclamation display of the gospel. It is the imitation of Christ's silent suffering at the hands of sinful authorities and of Christ's perfect trust in the justice of God. 
You see, it's not the conduct of wives, per se, that leads to the salvation, to the winning of their husbands. Rather, it is this conduct in as much as it is an imitation of the saving work of Jesus, who willingly submitted himself to disobedient authorities, which led to his atoning death, his life-giving resurrection, and his spirit-sending ascension. A wife's submission to a disobedient husband is a non-verbal proclamation in the form of imitation of the saving work of Jesus. Now, this imitation of Jesus, Peter says, can win a disobedient husband without a word. That's the intended purpose and result of obedience to this. But next, let's think about the manner in which this is to be carried out. Now, at this point, I hope it comes as no surprise to you that the manner which wives are called to submit to their husbands is also an act of imitation of Jesus Christ. Let's look at our text again. We're going to look beginning at the end of verse 1 where it says, They, husbands, may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now the first thing that Peter says about the manner in which this is to happen is that husbands may be won without a word. Now at the end of chapter 2, when Peter says that Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, he is alluding to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 7, speaking of this suffering servant, Messiah, speaking of Jesus Christ, says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And wives, as an act of imitation of Jesus, will win their husbands, Peter says, without a word. Now, this does not mean that a wife is never to verbally proclaim the gospel to a disobedient husband. No, it simply affirms the truth that in many circumstances, actions speak louder than words. Actions do, in fact, speak. And actions which imitate the saving activity of Jesus Christ speak the saving truth of the gospel. Now, Peter goes on to talk about the adornment of women. And it's not as if Peter has just lost his train of thought and he begins to talk about some disconnected idea of how you should dress and adorn yourselves. No, Peter calls wives to adorn themselves with godliness rather than external beauty and jewelry. And he is once again picking up on Isaiah 53. In verse 2 of this suffering servant song we see in Isaiah, we read this. For he, again speaking now of the Messiah Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And here we go. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, Jesus was not adorned with earthly beauty or majesty. Instead, when Jesus was enthroned, he was enthroned on a cross, naked and wearing only a crown of thorns. And yet, it is in this complete and utter lack of all human adornment and dignity that Jesus reveals to us the pure beauty of divine love and grace. On the cross, 
wearing thorns instead of precious gems, God reveals that which is truly precious in his sight and which can only be hidden in one's heart. On the cross, God reveals that true blessedness and beauty, the true blessedness and beauty of humanity, is found in a gentle and quiet spirit which trusts and hopes in the God who judges justly. Now this leads us to our example. Our example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Again, we read this, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As, and we heard this in our Old Testament scripture reading, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, picking up on our scripture reading, we remember that Sarah obeyed Abraham when he asked her to tell, and we only heard about it once, it happens again, but when he asked her to tell multiple kings that she was his sister instead of his wife. You see, Abraham acts in fear, fearful that they will kill him because of the beauty of his wife. Abraham acts in fear, scared that they will put him to death so that they can take Sarah to be their own wives, these kings. His fear leads him to disobedience. And not a small kind of disobedience, but a disobedience which willingly hands over Sarah, his wife, into a position to be violated and abused as a part of these kings' harems. But where Abraham was fearful and acted in disobedience, Sarah is courageous and she trusts God who judges justly. It's actually the submissiveness of Sarah to the fear-induced, sin-conceived plan of her husband Abraham, which serves as the powerful foreshadowing of Jesus' own gentle and quiet spirit, which perfectly trusted in God as he is enthroned on the cross. You see, ladies, the structure of marriage, a structure which calls wives to be submissive to their husbands, even disobedient husbands, is not a curse on women. Rather, it is a divinely created and heavenly sanctioned means of imitating Jesus, who is the perfect imitation or the perfect image of God himself, which means that the submissiveness that women are called to is not a curse. Rather, it is an avenue of blessedness for ladies. But before we end, we need to look finally at Peter's instructions to husbands as well. And at the heart of this instruction is Peter telling the husbands they need to honor their wives. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, there is a little debate over what Peter may mean when he speaks of women as weaker vessels, but the common consensus seems to rightly be that it's physical weakness that's in view. It's a biological fact that on the whole, as a whole, men are larger and stronger than women. Now, if you take this fact and you put it together with humanity's sinful turn towards personal self-serving autonomy, what you get is the all-too-common human history of men oppressing women. There are those who, when they read the Bible, would claim that the Bible condones this kind of male oppression of women because it calls women to a form of submission. And this submission, they would view as a form of male oppression over women. But Peter's words to husbands here demonstrate, 
I think that this could not be further from the truth. First, notice what Peter says about women in relationship to men. They are heirs with men of the grace of life. Now, there is no distinction in this language. There is no distinguishing between classes of Christians in this language. Thus, Paul can say in Galatians 3.28 this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, all humanity is equal in dignity, value, and equally partake in the grace of the divine life. But notice next that while Peter states the simple biological reality that as a whole men are stronger than women, this fact must lead not to the oppression of women, but to the honoring of women. And to honor the woman is the opposite of oppressing the woman. Now this is why I think Peter tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Or quite literally, live with your wives according to knowledge. Well, what knowledge does Peter have in mind? Well, of course, the knowledge that men are physically larger and stronger than women. But Peter also has in mind, as he does when he writes the entire epistle, the knowledge about Jesus Christ. Peter knows that Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus possesses complete and total, infinite and undiminishing power in himself. Likewise, Jesus has been given all authority, so Jesus has power and Jesus has authority. And what does Jesus do with his strength and with his authority? He bestows honor, the honor of salvation, the honor of forgiveness, of new life, of divine inheritance, the honor of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and he bestows it upon those of us who are weak. Here's what Paul says in Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ uses his infinite power to humble himself and serve us in our weakness. He bestows honor upon us by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Husbands are therefore, as an imitation of Jesus, to live with their wives so as to utilize their physical strength to bestow honor upon their wives, to display the good, beautiful, and true reality that she is, in fact, a fellow heir of the grace of life with her husband. Now, I think that we can make an application of this to any kind of strength, whether you have superior strength of intellect or strength of this or strength of that. Maybe you're better at this. The point being that when God gives strength to anybody, he does it as a gift that we might serve those who are weaker. Why? This is precisely what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so, as we wrap up the sermon this morning... We remember, friends, that humanity has been created for imitation. And what we've done with the text of Scripture today is to display how obedience to the command that Peter gives will inevitably lead, when it's done in faith, to an act of imitation of Jesus Christ. And I would say, friends, that this is a paradigm to read the Bible with. When you read the commands of Scripture, yes, it's good to say, I'm just going to obey this, but ask yourself this question. How does obedience to this command cause me to imitate Jesus? Now, why is that important? And we'll close with this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled faces 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, which he tells us just a few verses later, the glory of the Lord is found in the face of Jesus Christ. So beholding the glory of Christ, Paul says, we are transformed into the same image. It's only when we see Christ and the glory of Christ in the commands of Scripture that the Spirit does the transforming work in our heart. You see, rote obedience, simply trying to obey in our own strength when we're not mesmerized and captivated by the glory of Christ can only go so far. But when we behold his glory, we can be transformed into the same image. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the word of God and we thank you for the opportunity to behold your glory in the face of Christ. Lord, the Christ who persecuted the Christ who wrongfully, Lord, accused and hung on a cross, trusted in your justice. What an example we have of godliness. What an example to, to place our trust in you, Lord. So help us in the core of who we are to recognize and to realize, Lord, that you are, in fact, just, that you do, as Paul says, work out all things for the good of those who love you. And Lord, help us to be able then to submit ourselves to every human institution, wives to husbands, Lord, and every other call to obedience that you have placed upon us. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.